I know my Redeemer lives. That is a, uh, an amazing thought. If he wasn't living and living in my heart, I wouldn't consider life to be that worthwhile. My Redeemer lives. Greet you in Christ's name. It's my pleasure to serve you this morning. The title to this morning's message is A New and Better Covenant. The text is Hebrews chapter 8. A New and Better Covenant. In the first century, when a young Jewish man reached marriageable age, his parents would arrange for a uh, a marriage with a suitable young lady, and they would meet together, I'm told, to work out a bride price. The dowry was worked out between the families, and the daughter and the young man would meet with their parents, and if they reached a suitable arrangement, the young man, the father of the prospective husband, would pour out a glass of wine and give it to the young man. And the young man would take this glass of wine in his hand, and he would turn to the young woman, lift the cup up, and hold it out toward the young lady, and said, and this is what he would say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer to you. In other words, I love you and I will give you my life. Will you marry me? That is the modern way of saying it. But he said, I would offer you this new covenant in my blood. And the young lady had two options. She could take the cup from the young man and say no. I will not accept this and give it back to the young man. Or she could, without saying anything at all, take the cup of wine in her hand and, and drink it. And this then would symbolize her acceptance of the marriage covenant. Covenant for life. This morning I want to look at the teaching from Hebrews chapter 8 on a new covenant, a new and better covenant that God's established with us with the coming of Christ and contrast it with the covenant that it had been in place with Israel for some 1,500 years. First, a definition of a covenant. Nelson's Bible Dictionary gives a short, good definition of a covenant. It says, an agreement between two people or two groups that involves promises on the part of each to the other. So a covenant was two groups of people getting, making promises to each other. You will do this. This is your responsibility. I will do this. That's my responsibility. But in one sense, it is a little more than that, I believe. It is more than what we would think of as a contract. A contract is a binding agreement that you get together and you make this contract and, you have, and your responsibilities are outlined and the other party's responsibility are, are outlined. But the covenant 
is more of what we would think. The closest thing I think that we would know to the covenant in biblical times was a marriage covenant. We think of marriage. It's more than just promises. It's more than just you will be faithful to me, I will be faithful to you till death do us part. It is actually setting up a relationship. This covenant in biblical, uh, the concept of a covenant was, it was more than just a contract. It, is, it, it involved a relationship. And there were covenants throughout the years in Scripture. I, I was amazed in my study of this how much of it, how, how, how large covenants figured into God's dealing with men. And God chose to enter into covenants with man. And these covenants define the relationship of God over the years. There are some in, in the study that I've done, the listing is of perhaps nine different covenants that were outlined in Scripture over the years. Some of them may be somewhat repetitive, but I, I have seven that I will list for you without a lot of explanation of what they were. There was the eternal covenant that God, that the Godhead had established for mankind in heaven. Uh, Christ would come and die. God the Father would be pleased with that. And man would be redeemed from his lost state. There was the Adamic covenant that God made with, with Adam and Eve in that he would send a redeemer for them to redeem them from their lost condition. There was the Noahic covenant in which Noah was given certain responsibilities after the flood and God gave him promises. There was the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and eventually Christ would then come from his seed. There was the Mosaic covenant, which we will be using as a contrast this morning. And then there is the new covenant in which God sets up a covenant with us through the sacrifice of Christ. The question is, why would God set up covenants with humans? Why would God set up a covenant with people? Why would he enter into a covenant? That's a very good question because God is faithful. God doesn't need to promise anything. God doesn't need to set anything out in promises because God cannot lie. God is faithful. And God doesn't need promises from men. God knows how unreliable we are as people. And he knows that we're going to fail anyway, doesn't he? But he set up a covenant with people as a, as a gauge, I believe, of relationship. Of a relationship that I have. I, God, will bless you in this way. And your responsibility is to, to follow me. And he could gauge, he can gauge, and we can gauge our faithfulness in this covenants with God by entering into these covenants. Abraham was the recipient of the covenant. And I'm reading here from Genesis 12, the first three verses. Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was a quite a large covenant that God made with Abram that looked far into the future. He says, basically, because you are 
you are faithful to me, I am going to make of you a great nation. And ultimately, Christ, of course, would come of the seed of Abraham. And Abram's part in that covenant was to step out in faith. And because of the obedience and faith, God fulfilled his part of the covenant. The next large covenant that Scripture outlines is the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law is a covenant between God and Israel. Old Testament law is a covenant between God and Israel. And this is a well-known fact, and I think you knew this. But many people still mistake the Old Testament law as God's covenant with us today, and it's not true. The Old Testament law is not God's covenant with us. It is God's covenant with Israel. And the people will go back into the Old Testament law and say, well, this, this is, this is I got to obey this commandment, and I got to obey this commandment, and God will do this for me. That's wrong. I'll just stand right up here in front. That, that's not correct. The covenant in the Old Testament law was, in fact, God's covenant with Israel. And when those are restated in the new covenant, then they apply to us. And the two great laws still apply to us today. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus reinstated many of the commandments in the Old Testament into our covenant as well. But don't be going back and in, in, in looking that at the covenant that God had with Israel as a covenant with you. It is there for our reading and understanding. It is God's word, but it is not our covenant. The covenant guarantees protection and benefits for the servant. In this case, it was Israel. There would, God would protect Israel and give them many, many benefits. And the covenant requires loyalty from the servant. I am the Lord your God. God said to Israel. And they were to be loyal and to obey him. The servant shows loyalty by obedience to the rules of behavior specified in the covenant. This was the Old Testament law. And the Israelites were to be a part of that covenant. The covenant with Israel... This is more of interest than, than the meat of the message this morning. The covenant of Israel would, contains some 600 laws. Some 600 rules that they were given, including the Ten Commandments. And they were handed down through Moses. And it was a very formal covenant. And I don't know if you ever read through a portion in the Old Testament in which this covenant was outlined, but I will outline it for you briefly here. Whenever God mentions the covenant that he had with Israel, there were six parts to that covenant. First, there was the preamble to the covenant. The preamble identifies the parties of the, to, to the agreement. When God in, in the Old Testament introduces the covenant with Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God. So he was introducing the parties to this covenant. I am the Lord your God. And then the second part to the covenant was a prologue. The prologue was a brief history of how the two parties came together and, and what relationship that they, in fact they had with each other. 
And if you're reading through Deuteronomy or if you're reading through Numbers or you're reading through Exodus and, and, the, and the covenant is outlined, he says, I am the Lord your God. That's the preamble. The prologue is, I brought you out of Egypt. That's the relationship that I had with you. I took you by the hand and I brought you out of Egypt. The third part of a covenant was the stipulations, and those are the laws themselves. The stipulations, some 600, were there. They are not comprehensive. The stipulations in the Old Testament law are not comprehensive to every situation. They are known as paradigms, paradigms of expected behavior. And they still needed judges to, to bring those to the people. Fourth, there were witnesses to the covenant. Those who would enforce the covenant, the Lord himself, heaven and earth. I call heaven to witness. God says many times that I have this covenant with you, Israel. There were sanctions, the blessings or curses that were incentives to following the covenant. The Israelites had a service, at least once that I know of, and they were supposed to do it very often, where they would meet in front of two mountains. And over on one mountain, there would be the, the cursers, and the, and the other were the blessers. And one of them say, cursed is he that doesn't follow your law. And everybody else on the other mountain said, amen. And then the other mountain would start with, blessed is he that does this. And they would say, amen. Across this large valley, they would, they would do these blessings and cursings. And the Israelites were gathered there to listen to them. And then they ended, the, the sixth re, uh, part of a covenant was the document clause that provided for review of the covenant. At periodic times, they would get together and and read the law. Okay, so much about the technical parts of the covenant with Israel. The writer to the Hebrews says that the old covenant had problems. There were problems with the old covenant. Number one, it was limited in scope. It was never intended by God as a final solution. The Old Testament law was never intended to be the end all. Galatians 3 says, Why then the law it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So that was a large, that was part of the issue with the Old Covenant. It was very limited. Number two, it could not give life. The Old Testament covenant could not impart life to the recipients. It did not change the hearts of the people. Galatians 3 again, it is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. So the old covenant could not give life to the person who followed it. Number three, the people couldn't keep their end of the agreement. This was the big deal. This is why the Old Testament law didn't work, is because the people couldn't keep the law. They were not able to do it. The people said when the law was delivered to them different times, we will do it, we will do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't, and they couldn't. The law is there 
It was very useful, but it is not, they were not able to keep it. We can't keep it. It was given to show God's awesome holiness and to impress on us our own inability to please God. We could make a show of keeping the law, but they, you, we can't do it. So the old covenant had problems. A new covenant is instituted, and the institution ceremony was the what we would call the Last Supper. When Jesus met with his disciples to eat that Last Supper together, he instituted a new covenant that we have in effect still today. Not only with the Israelites from that time forward, but with all nations. All nations were then to be a part of this new covenant. God instituted a new covenant in that upper room. Reading from Luke 22, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Sounds a lot like that wedding or marriage ceremony, that thing that they did with a young man and a young lady in the covenant that they would enter in. Hebrews 9 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, and since it is not in force as long as the one who has made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So Jesus when he met with his disciples that very fateful evening, when they ate that last supper together, he instituted this new covenant in his blood. What are the requirements for the covenant? The covenant that we are a part of today. What are the requirements? What are the requisites? What needs to be a part of that covenant? First of all, there is the testator. The testator is the man is the person who makes the will. And this is old sounds like old English and it kind of is, but it's still a term used today in legal parlance. There's a testator. If you are a testator, you are a person who writes out a will, and that will, in fact, is still in force when you die. You are a testator. You are legally a testator. And you have made this will. The female version of a testator is a testatrix. And you try to find a synonym for that and you won't. I've looked at least. There is no more modern term for a testatrix. Testatrix is one who, a female who has a living will and when they die this will takes effect. And in the covenant that we have with Christ, the testator is Jesus. Jesus is the testator and he made this will before he died. And this new covenant was put in place before he died. And when he died, it took effect. This will, this covenant took effect when he died. He is the testator. The second part to the requisite for the new covenant is the heirs. 
The heirs of the covenant are we as believers. We, are, we have become heirs of this new covenant. We are the beneficiary of the will and testament, the last will and testament. The believers, we are, we are family by the grace of God, who are heirs. The third requisite for the new covenant is the goods that will be delivered. The goods that will be delivered are, is eternal life. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. This is the, this is the inheritance that we will receive is eternal life. Isn't that amazing? We are the inheritors of eternal life. It's because we are in the will. <laughs> okay. We have been put in that will. And we will receive eternal life. That's amazing. That's amazing. We can't earn it. We can't, we can't in some way become worthy of it. But we have received eternal life because we are the inheritors. We are the heirs of eternal life. Which will happen. Which will happen. The testator's death must occur, and we know that happened with Christ. He died. The testator gave his life at Calvary. And then there must be the reading of the will, or more technically, the fact of his death brought forward. The, the, we do that, hopefully, every time we meet. We read the gospel story. We read the will of God, we read it in our church services, we read about his will and what his will is, and we read that thing and we bring it forward and we say, Jesus died for me on the cross 2,000 years ago, it's right here in his will. And I read that will, and that is part of this covenant process, when I read that will. And then there must be witnesses. Initially it was the disciples, and we, in a sense, become witnesses also. And then the seal was the Lord's Supper that was partaken then, and, and, and we do partake of it again and again as we wait for the new covenant to take effect, the will to take effect in the resurrection. Open your Bibles if you don't already have them open to Hebrews chapter 8. I want to read our text. Hebrews and chapter 8. It's not a very long chapter, and it has to do with the new covenant and the fact that the new covenant is a new and better covenant. Those of you who can, let's stand as we read the word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. As we read, let's be thinking about this covenant and the reasons that the writer to the Hebrews here says that it is a, a new and better covenant. Verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, 
He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. The new and better covenant. I have four points I want to make this morning in the message as to why this is a new and better covenant. The first one is it replaces shadows with reality. The new covenant replaces shadows with the real thing. Verse 5 of our text says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The earthly worship instruments were a weak shadow of the real thing. They were but a shadow. They were just a reflection of the real thing. William Barclay says it well, the earthly tabernacle is a pale copy of the real temple of God. Earthly worship is a remote reflection of real worship. The earthly priesthood is an inadequate shadow of the real priesthood. All these things point beyond themselves to the reality of which they are the shadows. They were never intended to be permanent. They are an earthly copy. Colossians 2 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. And that's the central part of the message this morning, is that the substance of our covenant, the substance of our relationship with God belongs to Christ. And the light shines on the cross and the cross casts a shadow 2,000 years back. 2,000 years back in the Old Testament time when these people were worshiping in that tabernacle. It was a weak shadow, but it, the real thing is the cross and Christ on the cross. And the substance is always Christ. I will always preach Christ by the grace of God. I will always preach Christ because the substance is Christ. 
When you go back, the, the letter to the Colossians says, to the weak and beggarly elements of the old covenant. That's exactly what they are. They are weak and beggarly elements. The substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. Never forget that. Back there, those things were types. They were foreshadows of what would happen. A foreshadow is something that happens before, looking ahead. It's the type. The anti-type was, in fact, the cross in Christ. So many teachings and events in the Old Testament only make sense when they find themselves worked out in the pages of the New Testament. One can only understand the Old Testament in light of the New. And one can only get the richness in a way of the New Testament covenant in light of the Old. When you read the Old and the New, it's like two parts of a play. If you had a, a play where you had actors in, play, in, 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 in scene one, they, they were the Old Testament and they were doing all these things and they were doing this tabernacle worship and they're doing all this. They didn't really understand to the way that we can understand why they were doing all these things. In the New Testament, we look back in the New Testament and we see the, the things that went before and they bring such beauty to under, and understanding to what's going on in the New Covenant. The shadow was there, but the real thing is in Christ. The second point to the message this morning is why is it a new and better covenant is that it replaces externalism with heart change. The new covenant replaces externalism with heart change. Verse 10 of our text from Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a huge difference in the new covenant. God writes his laws into our hearts and in our minds. It's an internalized covenant, not just external, written by the Holy Spirit on our minds and our hearts. The Old Testament law was so filled with little rituals and, and things that needed to be done, external things. But in the new covenant, God's Spirit writes on our heart. And this is a process of sanctification where God's Spirit works in our hearts to make us more like His Son, Jesus. And there, 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 is, there, is, there is a whole world of difference. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is where the rubber meets the road in the new covenant. Is God's spirit within us? Writing on our hearts. Bringing things to remembrance. 
prodding us, reminding us, inspiring us. And if you want, if you would take anything away from the message this morning, this is the understanding that the Holy Spirit is within your heart, is within you. And we use the heart as a symbol of that. Is within you and working in your life. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 8. I want to read a few verses there without a lot of comment. But this, I believe, is the crux of the new covenant. Romans 8. I want to read some verses there from the first part of Romans 8. The Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit, is where the new covenant has its strength. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, what God, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You who, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give, your, give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit which dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I will put within you, the prophet Ezekiel says, a heart of flesh. And I will put within you my spirit. That is the new covenant. Number three, it replaces insecurity with a relationship. The new covenant replaces insecurity with a relationship. The insecurity that the Israelites felt and those who try to keep the law today even would feel is an insecurity because you can never fulfill the law. Trust me, you can't do it. And you will not do it. That creates an insecurity but the new covenant creates a security because of a relationship that we have with God. And I take that from verse 10 of our text. I will be their God, he says, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Under the new covenant, we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God. God's Spirit lives within us, and He is our Father, and He is our God, and we are His people. And there is a relationship there that was not possible under the Old Covenant. 
In the Old Covenant, the God was a God of absolute holiness, and he still is, but there was no closeness. They couldn't come close because they didn't have that cleansing. They were warned to stay away. The mountain was shaking, there was lightning and thunder, and there was all kinds of smoke and going on, and they didn't have that close relationship. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, First John says, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. There is now a relationship with us, with God, that is part of this new covenant. And the substance is Christ. Paul writing to the Philippians says, For whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Insecurity is replaced with a relationship. The fourth reason that this covenant is a new and better covenant, it replaces covering with forgiveness. I don't understand this 100%, but in the old covenant, the sins were covered. But in the new covenant, our sins are forgiven. It replaces covering with forgiveness. He says in verse 12 of our text, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But my sins are gone. This morning, my sins are gone. I accept that by faith because God says so. My sins are gone. I have some aunts and uncles that sing together. They are now getting quite up in years and they don't really sing together as much as they used to, but the Swartz singers used to sing, go around to Mennonite communities and give programs and stuff. And they're very unique in their singing style and my family kind of makes fun of them a little bit because they sang the old uh, South Southern gospel kind of way, but... They did give it a lot of effort. One of the songs that they sang that I can still hear in my mind, and I won't try to sing it for you, although I could, I can imitate them pretty well. And the song was, My Sins Are Gone. Nan, do you remember that song, My Sins Are Gone? Yeah, they used to sing that song. It goes like this, verse 1. You ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why, because my sins are gone. And when I meet the scoffers who ask me where they are, I say, my sins are gone. The chorus says they under, they're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary. They're as far removed as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me, 
Praise God, my sins are gone. Verse 2, "'Twas at an old-time altar where God came in my heart, and now my sins are gone. The Lord took full possession. The devil did depart. I'm glad my sins are gone. When Satan comes to tempt me and tries to make me doubt, I say, my sins are gone. You got me into trouble, but Jesus got me out. I'm glad my sins are gone. I'm living now for Jesus. I'm happy night and day because my sins are gone. My soul is filled with music. With all my heart, I say, I know my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary, as far removed as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Hallelujah. I'd like to recap just a little bit four reasons why the new covenant is better than the old. Number one, it replaces shadows with reality. The cross is the real one. Jesus is real. It's not just a shadow. Number two, it replaces externalism with heart change. Number three, it replaces insecurity with a relationship. And number four, it replaces covering with forgiveness. God bless you.